Ladies and gentlemen, friends of the podcast, wrestling fans, wrestling fans, welcome to episode 8 of The Wrestler That Was. I'm your host, Aaron, and once again, thank you for continuing to put up with me and my love letters to my wrestling heroes of the past. Today, we are dealing with an all-timer, but before we get to him, look, thank you for all the downloads, subscriptions, all the death threats that have been associated with these podcasts. Look, we here at the North-South Connection are nothing without the listeners. And if you have time to leave us a review or, hell, even share one of these things, just know uh, that, you know, it's the kind of thing that makes us eternally grateful. Even, even when you're calling us amateur douchebags, all right, I am touched that you were enraged enough to reach out about the validity of our opinions, no matter what. Look, a hate listen is still a listen. And shit, look, I'm just grateful that anyone even listens. So, you know, any and all involvement, me to you, it means a lot. But definitely check out all the great content on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. I'd like to think that we have something for every taste, and most of our content is evergreen. So even, so even if you're a lapsed fan... I think that there's there's something here that can tickle your nostalgia bone for you. And no, no, that's not a euphemism. Although tickling the nostalgia bone is probably how we should start describing fucking an ex-girlfriend. One of the shows you should definitely check out is the Ruthlessly Aggressive Podcast by our good friend Jake Williams. Um, so, Ruthless Aggression Era. Uh, you know, it's, it's crazy, uh, but it's, it's over 20 years old now. But despite it being that far in the past, I feel it's an oft-forgotten era with tons of gems in it, uh, some of which we're going to talk about tonight. But uh, Jake does a fantastic job guiding us through probably, it's probably the biggest uh, transitory period in company history, in WWE history. Uh, it's, it's every other Tuesday on the North-South Connection, and he brings in a guest, and they break down either uh, a pay-per-view or a series of shows leading to the era. It's either like a pay-per-view or a Raw or SmackDown. My most recent listen with Jake, uh, when, he's, when he welcomed my friend Marcus Fuller to the show, where they talked about Raw and SmackDown from February 2003, and uh, they're on their way to No Way Out, which is uh, a show, I guess. Uh, but unlike No Way Out in Montreal, uh, Jake and Marcus delivered. And what's cool about the show, the Ruthlessly Aggressive Podcast, is that, look, they break down everything, but it's cool because they also give a bit of insight as to where they were as, as fans at the time. So for some guests, they come in and they're super hardcore into the era, right? Others didn't watch it at all. And I think it's a really interesting context because I like seeing uh, those different kind of opinions. So check it out every other Tuesday on the North-South Connection Podcast Network, the Ruthlessly Aggressive Podcast with Jake Williams. So, on to our topic of today. 
I am a snob for color. So when I first saw a PWI magazine in the late 80s, I did not want to touch it. I'm like, is this newspaper material? Is the... Is the ink going to come off onto my hands? If I read this wrestling magazine, are my hands going to look like my dick after breakfast? I didn't understand. But there were pictures of bloody dudes in there. And some cool articles. And rankings. Holy shit, did I like the rankings. In the last episode, I talked about how I would do my own when I didn't want to write journal entries, right? But I lived for those PWI rankings. But I'm going to tell you, Something was off about them. WWF champion Hulk Hogan was never number one. Ultimate Warrior was never number one. Neither was Randy Savage. So who the fuck is this Ric Flair guy that kept getting put above them? He looks old and small. And why does he bleed so much? I would get frustrated every month when I looked at the rankings. How could he possibly be better? And strangely enough... I kind of started to get interested in the guy. But then, a perfect storm happened. I was really into Mr. Perfect, as I've mentioned before, who got hurt. And then there's this vacuum, right? I didn't know who to cheer for, you know? And I thought I was like, you know, I was 11. I was super cool cheering for the bad guys. But who could I turn to? Ted DiBiase? No, thank you. How could I cheer for a guy who can't even keep his own house in order, right? Earthquake looked like he smelled, all right? Undertaker was too slow. I was done with Hogan. Fuck the warlord. Jacques Rougeau, fine, but you know, no one else speaks French, so whatever. But then, here was this guy wooing and strutting and just getting in everyone's face. And despite wearing bathrobes in public, he was fucking cool. Plus, I I had the inside information. I knew he was the best from reading all those black and white magazines right? It's like, so I became like the people in Cleveland, the the cheer for the LA Lakers, right? Like you just don't want to be disappointed, right? You want to cheer for a winner. So I jumped all in. I was so excited as a fan. Had you asked me a year prior to Ric Flair's arrival, right? I would have told you I'd be cheering anybody against him. But now I was on his side. I was the perfect age to cheer for heels and find Bobby Heenan funny. Then the Royal Rumble hit. And I invited all my friends over. It was the first pay-per-view available in Canada. So I was stoked, right? But I also wanted Ric Flair to win. And they wanted everyone else. The next hour was a ton of emotion. And we all know how it went and how I no longer have those friends to this day. 1992 was one of my all-time favorite years. And Ric Flair is a big reason why. And I think he gets a bit of an unfair shake when it comes to his WWF work in that... His post-return stuff after 2001 doesn't seem to get a lot of love. Hell, I know at times I've probably shat on it too. I think this is going to be a really interesting one. We all know he's in the conversation for the greatest of all time. Now let's find out why. Now you know the drill by now. 10 categories with scores out of 10 gives us a nice round score out of 100. First category, narrative. Bobby Heenan shows up with a belt, a belt much bigger than the current WWF World Championship Winged Eagle title. Compare the two. But this belt was huge. 
It made the winged eagle look small by comparison. In fact, it made it look like a non-winged eagle who could do nothing more than roll himself down the street, squawking and cawing without a shred of that majestic bird dignity. Heenan stated that this belonged to the real world's champion, Ric Flair. Now, this was a shock. The WWF already had an orange champion, and now this old man was making big claims? With Flair came the first uses of the words executive consultant and financial advisor in the wrestling world. Thus, the trio of Ric Flair, Mr. Perfect, and Bobby Heenan was born. And at first, as I was writing this, I kind of scoffed at the idea that Bobby Heenan was a financial advisor. But... In retrospect, considering Ric Flair was probably on his sixth marriage at this point, it's probably best for the brain to help shield his money from these female ham and eggers. Flair would arrive and break the legs of Jim Powers and Jim Neidhart, and thank God Jim from the office wasn't around or he'd gotten a low blow and a broken leg as well. But then, a guy in a skirt started saying that he scared Flair which in many ways is preposterous. I mean, the only thing that scared Ric Flair was the love of his children. But he wasn't going to let Roddy Piper say that shit without busting his head with a chair or maybe even nailing that no-good Vince McMahon. Flair needed to prove that he was the best. So he went on an episode of that hit show, The Funeral Parlor, to laud his long list of accomplishments. He confronted the WWF champion Hulk Hogan, Unbeknownst to both, they should have been natural allies due to their yellow and green color scheme. But Hogan couldn't abide someone else calling themselves the best. Flair had a point, though, as he got in the face of Thunderlips and declared that while he was in Hollywood making movies, Ric Flair was winning world titles. Hogan was about to tell Flair something when an undertaker attacked the Hulkster from behind. Of course, Flair took this chance to put the boots of the Hulkster and potentially bang a few female Hulkamaniacs. Woo! Flair knew he was the best. He was just trying to show the world. He brought his title to the ring, but that bastard Jack Tunney video distorted the belt, much to the chagrin of the Flair trio. It was not fair to Flair. In fact, nothing that happened so far was fair to Flair. His luck would change, though, as he was forced to lead a Survivor Series team against the forces of the Hot Rod. He would come out on top as every single person on the other two teams had been counted out. Fair. Later in the night, he would get involved with the world title matchup between Hulk Hogan and The Undertaker. Flair sauntered down to have a peek at the action. How could he not? It was a marquee match. And Hulk Hogan assaulted the man for no reason. Flair was trying to find a place to set down his chair to watch the match when out of nowhere, Undertaker tombstones Hogan on the chair. How can one blame Flair? That wouldn't be fair. The Undertaker was the champion now and forced to defend against Hogan at this Tuesday in Texas. Again, Flair just wanted to see the match. Fair. He made his way down only to be attacked by a vengeful Hulk Hogan. And during the melee, Honorable President Jack Tunney was injured. Flair, being the decent one, knew this was no way for a championship match to end. Stunned, At the sacrilege of Hulk Hogan desecrating The Undertaker's family remains, Flair awoke Jack Tunney and valiantly held him up so he could see the travesty before him. Ric Flair had brought justice to the WWF Championship. He made it fair. With the title held up, 
Flair was unsure what his next course of action would be. He still possessed his World Tag Team Championship, but it was being blocked out at every show, robbing the people of seeing their champion. Tunney, though, had other plans. He declared that the title was now vacant. Thankfully, not in abeyance. And the winner of the 1992 Royal Rumble would be declared the champion. This was Flair's chance to prove that he was the best. He enters at number three, and he took it to the Undertakers, took it to the Savages, took it to the Hulks, took it to the Sids. And despite the fact that no one who had ever drawn numbers one through six had ever been there at the end, Ric Flair won the Royal Rumble and the WWF Championship. He had done it. Finally, they would be fair. With a tear in his eye, Flair declared that this was the greatest moment of his life. Ric Flair was getting ready to defend the championship against Hulk Hogan, but then Hulk Hogan got distracted with Sid Justice. In the wake of these events, it was announced that Ric Flair would defend the title against the macho man Randy Savage in the Hoosier Dome. So, Ric Flair did what any sane man would do when faced with the prospect of fighting Randy Savage. He claimed to have banged his wife and threatened to produce a naked centerfold of Elizabeth on the big screen. To say this was a miscalculation is a bit of an understatement. See, the Macho Man was a legit crazy person. And now, he not only wanted to win the title from Flair, but just straight up murder his ass too. What was he to do? If you're going to be fair to Flair, you got to be fair and say that she was damaged goods. Also, damaged goods was Randy Savage's knee after the WrestleMania match. Side note, um, this was the angle that forced my father to explain to me what uh, damaged goods was. Perhaps the most uncomfortable I've ever seen the man. Flair never took kindly to losing. He lost the title to Savage. So he made sure that Randy Savage never walked straight again. Randy Savage would defend his newly won title against the Ultimate Warrior at the 1992 SummerSlam. Again, it wasn't fair that Flair was left out. Both he and Perfect would get involved in the match, both by playing mind games beforehand, but also re-breaking Savage's knee during the encounter. This would eventually lead to Flair exploiting the injury and, fairly, winning the championship back three days after the Wembley showdown. Flair was where he always said he was. The top. This time, there was no video distortion. He was the champion. Until he lost to Bret Hart out of nowhere. Flair would then lose one of his friends as Mr. Perfect callously turned his back on their friendship and teamed with Randy Savage to defeat Flair and Razor Ramon. Flair was rudderless. He didn't see a way back to fighting Brett for the championship. He entered the 1993 Royal Rumble. He entered number one. And this time, there'd be no marathon finish as Mr. Perfect and his vengeance would not only cost Flair the Rumble win, but also exile him from the promotion a few nights later. While it certainly, I mean, no one could say it was fair, Flair was no longer the best. So he went on his merry way. Now, a few years later, and a while, a while removed from his prime, Ric Flair headed a consortium that bought the WWF and its shares from Shane and Stephanie McMahon. The consortium was him. He and Vince would be feuding partners for the better part of 2002. Flair wanted to make the promotion better while Vince seemingly wanted to destroy it. <laughs> it took him a long time, but he almost did it. Flair would beat Vince, but get himself destroyed by The Undertaker at WrestleMania 18. Within a few months, he would lose all of his controlling shares back to Vince McMahon on an episode of Monday Night Raw. Flair was lost. He didn't know if he still had it. He tried his luck against newly gifted world heavyweight champion Triple H. 
came out on the losing end. Flair knew, though, he had so much to give. So he decided to take a page out of his old friend Kurt Hedding's book, and he decided to manage the game. His knowledge was so great, though, that he and Triple H started mentoring two rough youths, Randy Orton and a 45-year-old Batista. They formed Evolution. And during their run, Flair would have tremendous success teaming with Big Dave. They would eventually be the world tag team champions. Randy Orton would then beat the shit out of Mick Foley and pull the whole group into a feud with the Rock and Sock connection. They clashed at WrestleMania 20, during which we got a low-key dream match of the Rock facing the Nature Boy. Flair would strut and dance, and eventually his team stood victorious. The Evolution deal was good for Flair. He felt validated again. And then Batista ruined it by breaking the group up. Batista dethroned Triple H, and despite Flair's best efforts, the game could not regain the title from the animal. With Triple H gone, Flair was on his own again. He decided to try his hand at singles work. He won the Intercontinental Championship out of nowhere against Carlito. He had made it back to the near mountaintop. Then Triple H came back and kicked the shit out of him. The two would clash in a cage at Taboo Tuesday, where Flair would humble the game and retain his Intercontinental Championship. Of course, that couldn't possibly end the feud, because Triple H had to fight him again a few weeks later and put him to rest. See, Triple H cared so little about the Intercontinental title, he wasn't even upset when it wasn't on the line for their Survivor Series last man standing match. Triple H felt that he needed to put the old man Flair down. And he did put him down. But Ric Flair didn't stay down. Defeated and humbled, Flair decided to try and conquer styles that he, quite frankly, had no business competing in. He would try to out-ladder Edge. He would try to out-hardcore Mick Foley. He'd try to out-bully Bob Hawley. He was actually able to defeat Mick Foley simply by not having a best friend named Melina. But then Rick would float after Foley. He lit a fire under Carlito. He failed to win the U.S. title from MVP. He even got involved with the great Kali. Then he took a brief hiatus. Upon his return, he was challenged by one-time partner Vince McMahon to keep winning matches or be forced to retire. Flair knew that if he was going to walk around claiming to be the best, he would have to beat the best. So, after defeating many in career-threatening matches, Flair would challenge the best at the time, at least in his eyes, Shawn Michaels. Sean warned him he wanted no part of this, but begrudgingly accepted and ended Ric Flair's career. He was no longer the best, so he retired. That was what was most fair to Flair. Then he came back and danced with his daughter. Look, Flair's story has always been one of trying to prove that he's the best wrestler in the world. His post-2002 comeback was kind of a battle against his own self-confidence, right? And I think, yeah, it kind of lacked the cohesion. It's like 2002 on. Kind of lacked the cohesion of his 1991 to 1993 run. Um, But I think for the most part, it's still colored with Nature's drive to be number one. He had a clear objective throughout his career. And once he discovered that it would elude him forever, he left on his own terms. I think that's some solid, albeit not wonderful storytelling. Seven out of ten for narrative. How was he as a babyface, though? Uh, it's a kind of a shame. I'll be. It's kind of a shame we never got pure babyface, uh, Ric Flair pure babyface, like in his prime in WWF. I'd wager that like 1993 Ric Flair in WCW is probably one of the greatest faces of all time. 
I guess, I guess that's what happens when you're one of the greatest of all time to begin with. You know what works and what doesn't work. That being said, I wouldn't sleep on Ric Flair's face work in his post-2001 stuff. He just gets it, you know? And he knows how to draw sympathy from an audience. He was fantastic in his role against Vince and The Undertaker. His work against Triple H, though, is awesome. He's just got that, like, pissed off, like, Clint Eastwood old man character down. And how can you not cheer for that? It's an unconventional face, but it is a face nonetheless. I mean, there's never been another face who grabbed as much penis as Ric Flair. I mean, every other match is just a handful of nuts, right? And, and look, the fans are not booing this display. Oh, no, no, no. They are positively delighted. And it wasn't just grabbing. I mean, I swear the inside of that man's elbow has seen more cock than Jenna Jameson. The crazy thing is, the more penis-based offense that you'd pull out of his robe, the more the fans cheered him. I guess it's because he was just so good at fighting from underneath. I mean, his age gave him a natural weakness. I mean, nobody wanted to see this old man get hurt. But by the same token can't really turn away as he's being tossed off that ladder. Look, regardless of age or STDs, there's an argument to be made that from mid-2005 until his retirement in 2008, there's not a ton of faces in the company that got consistently strong reactions as Ric Flair. I mean, hell, he's so good at garnering sympathy that even now, when they want to do a nonsensical Batista-Triple H feud in 2019, they drag Ric Flair's ass to get beat up. People will always be behind him. We're forever impressed with like the sheer volume of ball holding. All that being said, I can't go much higher than six here. Yes, effective as a face, but by the same token, with the exception of the feud with Triple H, he's never really taken seriously as a major on-screen threat during that face tenure. It was always like, what? Like he beat Carlito as the champion? Or man, how can this guy possibly be in the, in the ring with Kane? But I think six is strong. I don't, I don't, it's not a weak six. It's a strong six. Heel is the flip side. And this is where the dirtiest player in the game excels, right? I mean, everything, everything about the character screams heel. He would jet into town. He would steal your wife. He'd beat up your favorite wrestler. He was sort of like a, a million-dollar man-esque character, but with, I think, a slight and important variation. See, Ted DiBiase was all money, and he used that money to buy success. Ric Flair's character was a rich dude, but that wealth came from his success as a wrestler, right? He dressed well, he flew in jets, he wore crazy robes because he'd earned that right to do that from his work in the ring. From his debut in the WWF, he carried himself like a star, a fucking asshole, but a star, nonetheless. That, and he generally spoke the truth. When he busts out on Hogan, I just burst that bubble you've been living in. Man, we believed it. Because those of us in the know, and that's most people, I say me, but most people knew, that he was a legitimate world champion against whom Hulk Hogan had never been tested. He delivered what he said was he was going to do as well. He won. He won often. Yes, he cheated, but he cheated. But there was also all these incredible feats of athleticism, which make us kind of begrudgingly respect him, right? By the end of the 1992 Rumble, even Gorilla Monsoon is commending him on his performance. He was a sneak and a snake 
but damn good. And the heel mannerisms are all there. I mean, the strut enraged us, the promos enthralled us, and the constant threat to fuck a fat boy's wife would no doubt get him canceled today. Plus, the pairing with Kurt Henning and Bobby Heenan was a stroke of genius. They were the, forgive my pun, the perfect trio. I think his persona is built to be a heel. But he's just so good that people started cheering him. I think a little underrated bit of his heel work is his ability to have an incredible mean streak when the storyline called for it. Look, the beating he puts on Randy Savage at the end of their WrestleMania 8 match is a prime example. He basically destroys the dude's knee with like this vicious, man, this like vicious vindictive behavior. But then he just walks off calmly to the back, completely drenched in his own blood. He's calm. He's fucking calm. It's sensational. And I think too, as he got older, he was... He was a good heel uh, second for the, like, emotionless, stoic uh, Triple H, right? Triple H's biggest problem was that he never wanted to show any weakness, but Ric Flair was more than happy to show weakness for him. If Triple H needed someone to do some sort of gymnastics so he could stay in the elimination chamber pod a little longer, Ric Flair was there. If he needed someone to show a shocked face, because Triple H can't do a surprise, if he needed someone to show a shocked face and toss their body backwards in some sort of, like, an outraged fit, Well, Ric Flair was there. He was the heel that all others tried to emulate. And while it made him truly impossible to like really hate, he deserves a high score for being such a standard bear. Nine out of 10. So if I had to rank his characters, um, it would look like this. The fifth best is, I think the fifth best is pep talk guy for Triple H. Like I loved the outside antics, but if I had to hear another like, you are the game. You are WWE World Heavyweight Champion. You are the greatest superstar. You know, I just might fucking blow my brains out. Do we really need Triple H getting blown on TV by the greatest of all time week in and week out? Number four, uh, old man coasting to retirement. I mean, at that point, let's call a spade a spade. He was fucking old yeller. Uh, he wasn't fucking old yeller. He was, you get what I mean. That, that dog, I, I, I know he was all over the place with his sexuality, but he didn't fuck a golden retriever, okay? Uh, number three, co-owner of the WWF. I, I know he was trying to find his kind of footing and confidence, but I think the gravitas that he brought had a lot of respect uh, to a time when the company was in transition, right? They're moving away from the old, and Flair was like a good transition character for that. Second best, pissed off old man out for blood. Whether it be against Triple H or Mick Foley, this crazy fuck was going to kill someone or kill himself trying. And that's really impressive considering he was fueled entirely by blood thinners. And I think his best character in the WWF, it's no surprise, it's the real world's heavyweight champion. I mean, such such a breath of fresh air from the monsters and the foreign invaders. Here came a guy who was the best in the world. He can back it up. He was a wrestler's wrestler. Next is work. And look, I could say this for a lot of categories, but I mean, he's Ric Flair, right? (laughs) He's probably the greatest of all time, despite the protestations of a certain hitman, right? And I could probably end with that and give him a 10, but let's explore it a bit, all right? Has anyone ever thrown a better punch than Ric Flair? 
I mean, they always looked like they connected right on the fucking jaw. So I recently watched his 30 for 30 documentary, and he said he was able to do that because he hung a string from a doorway, and for three years, he punched at it until he could touch it without making it move. I mean, that's some obsessive shit. That's, that's like Wayne Gretzky mapping out the puck, like where the puck went on the ice for every hockey game he watches a child-level shit. But guess what? Wayne's the greatest of all time, too. There's very little, if anything, that Flair did in the ring that didn't look great. Watching his matches back, I was especially impressed with his suplexes. The delayed suplex in particular. He would hold the dude up for a long time and then drive. Not drop, drive him into the mat. Same with the belly-to-back suplex. His chops, obviously legendary. Like, I think maybe that's, I think when it comes down to it, I think that's why Brett doesn't like him. He just hated taking those chops. And like, why would he take those chops? Like, why wouldn't he? They must have fucking hurt. They resonated through every building in the world. Ric Flair made chops so famous, like that no one in the industry can throw a chop without hearing a woo, right? I also loved how in his work, Ric Flair had like that next gear he would tap into when the urgency of a match called for it. He would break out like the rapid fire blows to the head. He would speed up the leg attacks. Oh, and the leg attacks. No one was better at destroying a knee than Ric Flair. The chop blocks look solid. And his work, I don't know if he was someone who hurt you. I'm sure the chops hurt. But his work never looked like he was taking it easy on his opponents. Like to this day, I still don't know how he pulled off those knee drops to the head. I mean, I can see, and this is not a knock. I can see the mechanics on the Triple H knee drop. Like, because he clearly does it beside. But Flair seems to, like, bounce right off the dude's head. And it makes me think, like, did he maybe practice kneeing a dog's head on the floor until he was finally able to do it without the dog dying? Also, why does everyone get so upset when we talk about dead dogs? Flair's selling was also immaculate. Uh, No one screamed as much as the Nature Boy. And that includes wrestlers who have the moniker screaming in their name. He would claw, he would beg, he would catch, like, he would catch, like, a massive beating. I love the shots that he would take, uh, like, he'd get hit with an axe on it or something, and he'd sprawl out like a dead starfish. And look, I bring up a dead starfish, no one gives a shit, right? But here we are. But for a big dude, and he was a big dude, um, he's also really agile. The Irish whip into the corner was always impressive. Yes, Shawn Michaels would eventually get it faster, but there's this cool fluidity of Flair's movement which is only heightened by him sprinting to the other side of the ring and getting tossed off the top turnbuckle. I also adore how he was able to work comedy into his matches. I mean, do yourself a favor, if you've never watched it, and maybe if you even have, just to get refreshed, go back and watch the first time Flair and Piper face off at the 1991 Survivor Series. Not only does Flair bust me up with just how demolished he gets, but he also sells the fuck out of an eye poke and finishes with a tremendous Flair flop. Oh, and the flare flops. Ugh. I love that he would take a beating and then try to walk away and fall on his face. Sometimes there's many steps. Other times, just turns around and falls. Yeah, it's hokey, okay? But, I don't know. It worked for me every time. So, he's incredible, right? So, here's why I tell you why I only give him an 8 out of 10. And it's not because uh, Bret Hart thinks he's a routine man. I mean, Bret has never seen a mirror, apparently, right? By, like, by the way, I know I fuck around a lot with Brett, uh, but I know when he gets his own episode, he's for sure going to kill it in these categories, all right? 
No, I think the problem with Flair is that of his seven years in the company, we only get peak Flair for one year and a bit. So January uh, 1991 to January 93 is impeccable. And if we're, if we're ranking him only on that, he'd score a perfect 10. But we have six years where Flair's not at his peak. And now I still argue that he's very, very good in this stretch. But he's not the nature boy of Jim Crockett promotions. And that's okay, right? I don't mind. He's getting older. And quite frankly, it's impressive that he was still able to go at such a high level. It's also incredible that he survived 10,000 back body drops. But, you know, people were just built differently back then. I mean, Ric Flair survived a back body drop from 20,000 feet. And plus, in his tenure, he also wasn't wrestling Seth Rollins, so you knew, for the most part, he was in safe hands. In the 2000s, though, he's just that little bit slower, that little bit less precise. He was also, like, I mean, there's he has some great matches in there, as we'll talk about. But he was also rarely given the chance during that era to have these big, long matches, to show that he could still go. He could still punch and chop. But he starts relying on the chops a little too much. He was moving with less finesse. It was nature boy light. And I'm glad we got it. But I cannot, in good faith, name him one of the greatest workers in WWF history. That accolade will probably only be doled out to a guy like Shawn Michaels. And yes... Bread Hart. Matches. So for matches, we take his average star rating for all of his matches that I've watched, which are all the pay-per-views, as much of the TV as I can stomach. And uh, once you get up past a certain number, the average stays the same. And uh, you take the average star rating for all the matches, multiply it by two, gives you a score out of 10. Ric Flair scores 6.32. His match average is 3.166. And that, my friends, is the highest of anyone we've done so far. And that's out of 36 pay-per-view matches. So it's not a bad sample size either. That's not to say he doesn't have uh, bad matches. So let's deal with his five worst matches. Number five. From No Way Out, 2008 versus Mr. Kennedy. Kennedy. Uh, Not a great start. uh, As Lillian calls this a Khalil threatening match. Uh, Look, look, you know, as much as I think it's silly, I don't want to have my Khalil taken from me. And as soon as they gave, I feel as soon as they gave Kennedy the special mic that descended from the sky, I think it made him look less cool. I like that he had to kind of grab it from somebody, you know? Kennedy's also wearing a t-shirt that's longer than his wrestling trunks. And I always hated that because it looks like, it makes it look like the dude's not wearing any pants. And Floyd Mayweather's a fan of all this, so whatever. Some fucking grumps sitting right in the front row with a giant woo sign looking miserable. Just go home. If you're not happy, go home. Kennedy with the cheapest heat, mocking the Flair strut. I can't believe I like Kennedy in 2006. Flair starts pummeling him, throws him into the corner, and Kennedy busts out with a drop kick to the injured leg of Flair, who yells, Ah, oh, fuck! <laughs> Single leg crab on Flair. That's never beaten anybody. A cool spot, though, where Kennedy is smashing Flair's leg on the apron, and Flair is going, God damn you! God damn you! Kennedy replies by giving Flair the Bret Hart ring post figure four. And then Kennedy gets in his face and goes, ow, fucking lame. Uh, Then slaps Flair like uncomfortably hard in the face. Kennedy eventually gets Flair in the figure four. And I do like that when they're in the figure four, uh, they're pawing at each other and trying to get the advantage while in the move. More dumbass strutting from Kennedy. Flair takes forever to get off Kennedy's back uh, and lays him out with a chop block, right? 
Kennedy pulls his pants down, though, and tries to cheat Flair out of a career with his feet on the ropes. Then Flair gets figure four on Kennedy. Kennedy taps out of nowhere. Again, this is nothing crazy, right? I say bad matches, right? I did like some of the detail work a bit more uh, than the next match on our list, though. I'm going to go two and a half. See, again, we're in the bad matches, but two and a half is kind of replacement level, uh, to quote some of my very good friends on this network. Um, after the match, uh, Flair announces his own victory uh, like on the mic. He gets on the mic and goes, your winner, Ric Flair, but he misses the opportunity to say his name twice to mock Kennedy. I'm actually kind of shocked he didn't do that. All right, number four, worst match. It's a bit of a theme here from the 2008 Royal Rumble versus MVP. Again, we're in the career-threatening match era. Uh, very spiffy Ric Flair, all in yellow. MSG goes crazy for the dude. And I am a sucker for the storyline that like he has to keep winning or he retires. I like it. I, I think it gives every match stakes. Flair grabs the mic, puts over MSG. This is a great move because it starts to make you think that, hey, maybe he could lose here. He's thanking the crowd for showing respect and he's about to go on about how important respect is for him. But in a great spot, MVP's music cuts him off. And MVP just looks so legit coming out with the US title. I feel like this is a dude that probably isn't pushed as hard as he should be because of the costume he wears. It's just, it's too much spandex. And this is a sport 75% based on spandex. Imagine. MVP backs him into the corner. He does the ball in chant. The crowd not impressed. MVP slaps Flair, which makes Rick angry, so he chops him. And like, you know, I'm all in for the Flair chops, but the spandex is absorbing all the impact. MVP coming at him with a great Yakuza kick, but the crowd's not biting on that cover. And this is despite Michael Cole saying, the crowd is gasping at every near fall. Flair kind of starts to go through the motions, and he floors MVP and gets kicked off with a figure four. Then rolled up. No gasping still. And poor Ric Flair. I mean, even at this age, he's still taking back body, back body drops, right? And at what point is enough of those, right? Just stop. Flair goes to the corner. MVP crushes him with a haluva kick. Then the ref counts three. And the career is over. Now the crowd actually fucking gasps, Michael. But Flair had a foot on the rope. And Little Nate is waving that shot off. Ric Flair schoolboys MVP for a very close two. Cole could not, Cole, Michael Cole could not sound any thicker saying, it may be the last match of Ric Flair's career. I swear he's the fucking worst. Flair's going all out though. Eats a superplex. MVP though can't keep him down. Now MVP's slapping him. I don't know why everybody slaps him in this run. I, I don't like it. He gets Flair up in a fireman's carry and Flair just kind of falls. Then they meander through some moves. I guess it must have been important because they had to go back and do stuff. Michael Cole laments. He's like, oh, it's such, a, it's such a shame that someone as confident as MVP might end Flair's career. Dude, it absolutely should have been a guy like MVP who ended his career. Flair getting hot but eats a punch in the throat and then hits a knee lift that misses by a mile. MVP goes for the playmaker, but Flair reverses into the figure four. Perhaps, MVP, if your finish wasn't such a convoluted mess, uh, you wouldn't get into these situations. MVP taps. Flair's career is still alive. Ugh, again, it's fine. It's fine. Two and a half stars. These are almost not as interesting to talk about because they're not horrible. Anyway, third worst match. Backlash 2006 versus Umaga. Armando Alejandro Estrada. Talking to us and laughing between each line like he's double J. 
It's enraging. He is introducing the man who is going to destroy the nature boy, Ric Flair. Ha ha. Umaga comes out to some green lights. Are those supposed to represent trees? We get a recap of him almost murdering Flair on Raw. And I see Ric Flair during that era is already wearing his dumbass drip suits in 2006. Still getting great pops, though. I don't understand, and maybe someone could fill me in on this. Why is the theme from 2001 Space Odyssey edited out on some matches but not others? I, I don't know what's going on. Ric Flair in red. Uh-oh. He's undressing on his way to the ring. Umaga meets him in the aisle, beats him down like the old man he is. Uh, Flair can take over only when he thumbs to the eye and low blows. And, and that's kind of proof that Umaga had a human penis. Flair just outright low blows him in front of the ref, not even trying to hide it. Mickey J doesn't care. Uh, the running ass to the head is countered with a snake slither to the outside. Umaga smashes himself to the post. And now Flair's trying to break his leg, as one is wont to do. Stomp on his fucking foot, you old fuck. Just stomp on him. Flair tries for the figure four, but gets kicked off. But then clearly, obviously runs his head into the corner. Now Umaga smashes his face with his ass. And in sc- <laughs> so he runs and smashes his, face, like his head with his ass, right? Flair screams, oh God! But then gets up to his feet. And I really struggle <laughs> with Ric Flair selling concussive blows by screaming, oh God. And that's the last thing you want to do when you have a concussion is scream. Especially screaming to God. You think God can do a CTE scan? Yes, I know he's backstage at this very show, but don't bother him. He has a match later. Samoan Spike and Flair is dead and pinned. Jim Ross like, I can't believe Ric Flair was beaten so soundly. Two and a half. (laughs) Again, even his bad matches, Flair is doing some good for someone. So three three matches into the bad ones. We're we're not cracking two and a half. Let's see if the uh, second to worst match does that vengeance 2006 versus mick foley two out of three falls foley gets kind of a mixed reaction for his promo off the top he's doing a public book reading and he's mad that he was called a glorified stuntman look i I get that this is kind of i guess a harsh dig in his book flair's being a dick writing that but now foley's threatening to out wrestle flair and i don't know why this is two out of three falls whatever it's just a tepid reaction from mick But then again, didn't he retire six years ago? And I get coming back to put over the young guys, but coming back to fight over who said what in your goddamn autobiographies? And now fully too, despite wanting to be taken seriously as a wrestler, he's still coming out in the sweatpants and flannel. Like, it's like if he was, if the story was like, I'm going to out-wrestle Ric Flair, imagine if he'd come out in trunks and a robe. Ric Flair comes out looking more like Bob Barker by the day but also looking like he's having the time of his life. Mark Mickey J holds the ropes for him. And that is a young Ashley Flair in the audience. Very loud Foley sucks chant. I guess they're still mad about the ECW stuff. I'm not sure what would smell more, right? Would the odors of Mick Foley's flannel shirt outstench the pure bleach smell coming from Ric Flair's hair? They chain wrestle. Uh, this does not play to Mick Foley's strengths at all. Poor Mick. Tries to emulate the strut, and it's awful, right? Flair gets his face smashed, starts screaming again. Foley scoops him up and levels him with a double-arm DDT. And there's a goddamn Ric Flair sock. What are we doing? Foley goes from the mandible claw, but he just gets his penis grabbed. 
Flair then hits a top rope double axe handle, and the crowd goes wild because they've never seen this before. But he hurt his knee, and now Mick Foley's working the leg. I don't recall Mick Foley ever working a body part in any match that I've ever seen him in. Foley goes to the figure four. Flair cradles him, very weakly, for a three count. Fall one to Flair. Flair's like, Jim Ross is like, well, he's the dirtiest player in the game. This is after he reversed an Irish whip to the outside. What a fucking dirty pig. Don't you reverse an Irishman, you son of a fucking bitch. You know how many fucking potatoes that fucking guy had to eat? Foley takes control, backdropping Flair on the floor. Then he gets a garbage can. Uh, despite, this is not a no DQ match, right? He walks slowly towards Flair. And Flair, in turn, slowly trips him down and puts him in the figure four. Then Foley hits him with the can and gets DQ'd. What is the fucking point of this? Like, I, you know, I don't get it. Foley hits Flair again in the head with the can. Then he goes out and gets the barbed wire bat, runs it into Flair's head. Now Flair's all cut up. He's a bloody mess. Flair's family's concerned. <laughs> poor, poor Rick Flair's family. Imagine how many concerns that guy puts on his family. His health, the blood, the finances, the, they might abandon them. He's just nothing but concern. So I guess this whole thing was an angle, but it's just a waste. Like, why do the dumbass finish with the can when Foley was beaten for the second time? Like, can Foley not hang with this old man? How about instead, Foley starts the match by getting DQ'd by bloodying Flair. Then Flair has to, like, valiantly fight through the blood. You know, and then maybe we pin him or something, right? Anyway, I... I get what they're trying to do. I just think it was kind of poorly executed. But all that, even then, still two and a half. Worst match. New Year's Revolution. 2007 versus Kenny Dykstra. Dykstra, I guess at this point, is spoofing Flair with the robe and headband. Like, they couldn't get Kenny Dykstra more feathers for his robe? Like, listen, Kenny, if you're not willing to invest, why should we invest in you? You just go to a goddamn chicken farm. You get in your car. You drive to the farm. They're going to give you feathers. Kenny cuts a promo before the match. He plays a clip from Raw with rated RKO destroying him. It's a really brutal promo from Kenny, and he's got an awful nose. It, He kind of, like, with the nose and the feathers, he kind of looks like a molting bird. Nothing works. Beautiful pink robe, though, with a ton of feathers on it for Ric Flair. And Kenny stupidly says he's 37 years younger than Flair. Jeez, Kenny, you better not lose after saying that. They trade blows, and I really wish Flair would teach Kenny how to throw a punch. Kenny gets the living hell chopped out of him and flops onto the outside. I must admit, with Ric Flair, I like the red tights with the black boots variant. Kenny, very slowly now, beating down Flair with weak-looking offense... The match is just boring, and I don't want to Rick. Rick Flair matches are not usually boring, right? Long Boston Crab from Kenny. Look, just fucking wrench the back and and break it. Just break it. Flair collapses, but then fights back and crawls all the way across the ring to get to the ropes. Flair like bit his hand to sell, like to show he was in pain. But I mean, it's not enough pain to tap out when you're in a hole for sixty seconds. They really fucked up this dude too, naming him Dykstra, right? Like, awful name. Like, Lenny Dykstra was a piece of shit. We're going to name this wrestler after him now. Lawler also keeps comparing Flair to Rocky Balboa. And at first, I was like, what? What? why? Why? But then, I remembered Rocky Six came out, like, just around this time. And this is a very rare, timely reference, like, from the commentary team. 
They go toe-to-toe. Kenny punches him down. Kenny tries to do a figure four, but Flair, with a lot of cooperation, cradles Kenny for a close two. Back to chops. I should, like, copy-paste back to chops because that's kind of where every match goes. Uh, Flair goes to the top. Lawler's like, don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, the King is proven right as Flair is thrown, like, the whole way across the ring. But he gets an eye poke, a chop block, then, like, a brain-scrambling knee, according to Jim Ross. Flair gets him in the figure four position and just kind of decides instead of, like, putting the figure four on to stand on his dick. Whatever. Figure four, Dykstra's suffering while Flair's, like, pumping his fist. Like, yeah, I got him. He's in the figure four forever. Still gets to the ropes. Flair's beating him in the corner. The ref keeps getting involved. Then Flair kind of shoves the ref away. And Kenny low blows him, rolls him up for the win. I think Kenny Dykstra, Kenny Spirit Squad, whatever you want to call him, I think he shit the bed here. He didn't show anything interesting against Flair, and Flair was giving him tons of time and opportunity to shine. This was a big opportunity for Dykstra. The finish sucked and did nothing for either guy. No thanks. I don't think the match was bad. I think it's two and a quarter, which is crazy for a worst match for a guy. But I just think, given that opportunity, Kenny should have probably, probably done a bit more. So for a worst match being two and a quarter, really not bad. We dealt with the worst. Now let's deal with the best. I'm going to tell you, there's one I considered, which was the um, WrestleMania 22 Money in the Bank. and I have it really rated high. I think I have it at four four and a half. And I remember Flair in it. So I rewatched it, but he's just not in it enough to really give him credit for the match. Although he does have some memorable stuff in it. So as his fifth best match from WrestleMania 24, career-threatening match against Shawn Michaels. And I'd forgotten that Flair was going to the Hall of Fame that year too. And this is the culmination of the win until you uh, win until you retire Vince McMahon stipulation. And Flair demanded to wrestle the man whose name was synonymous with WrestleMania. And Sean, to his credit, didn't want to be the guy who wants to end Ric Flair's career. And I know, I love in the story that Sean knows he has to heal it up. So he does that like slight shift that Shawn Michaels in the 2000s are really good at. Starts calling Flair old yeller. He does just enough to get booed. Mike Adamley interviews Flair beforehand, and I am just thrilled he doesn't call him Richard Fjord or anything like that. Sean comes out. The crowd can't find in their hearts to boo him because they know he's, he's been so great at WrestleMania since his return. And I love Sean's determination here, and I don't even mean as a character, because he knows what he has to do. He has to go out there tonight, it's one shot, and give his hero the send-off he deserves. And he doesn't flinch. He just does it. I love when people just do shit, right? All the Flair kids are in the front row. Sean knocks Flair down with a shoulder block to start. Crowd's starting to boo a bit. This is such a great contrast to the Triple H matches. Because those were blood wars. This is a contest to see who's the best and if Flair can still hang. And we get to see Flair as the wrestler as opposed to the fighter. And I'm going to preface everything about I say about this match by saying there's a true brilliance in framing the story as can Flair still hang. Because it allows for much of what happens in the match to fall right into that story. If Flair fucks up, he can't go. And that's the story. Flair, immediately at the beginning, gets into Sean's face and screams, Old Yeller, eh? Old Yeller, eh? Love Canadian Flair. Sean slaps the shit out of him and busts up Flair's mouth, like cuts him with the slap. And Sean goes, you wanted it? You can leave now if you want. Great stuff from Sean. 
They fight around. Amazing cross body block from the top rope from Flair. Like, it's the kind of thing you, he does because he's pulling out all the stops. Flair goes for, like, a very um, very early figure four but gets kicked to the outside. And this is Sean in his element. Baseball slide levels Flair. Then Sean goes from the moonsault from the apron to the table. Misses. Sean crushes himself on the table. It doesn't break. It looks like he smashes his ribs on the corner. It looks like it hurts. He almost gets counted out. Like, it was really nasty. But now Flair starts working over him more slowly. Flair smartly starts working the ribs. Great series of suplexes. You didn't know Flair still had in his arsenal, but they're there. Standing vertical, delayed suplex, gets the whole crowd to their feet. Flair's doing well, uh, but then makes a mistake of putting his head down, and Michaels makes him pay with a neck breaker. Both guys exhausted, going toe-to-toe with chops. Sean hits the flying forearm, kips up, crowd pissed. But the ribs are still hurt. Sean hits an inverted atomic drop, and Flair does a weird, like, backwards Flair flop. It almost looked like he missed something, but, you know, I'll give him credit. Remember, can Flair still go, right? But it's probably the worst spot in the match. Uh, Michaels hits the flying elbow. He's in pain, starts to tune up the band. The crowd is screaming no. But then there's some that are counting along with the stomps. Michaels has Flair dead to rights. He goes to kick him, but hesitates. Remember, he doesn't want to do this. In that moment, Flair grabs his leg, applies the figure four, and this, the crowd is now losing it, right? The problem is, Michaels, a few years ago, showed that he could stay in an ankle lock for two minutes, so it might not have been the best strategy to try to make him give up. Michaels then reverses, the crowd is pissed again. You cannot say the crowd isn't involved and invested in this match. Then they run through the reversal and bridge sequence, like uh, the backslide into the bridges and all that, and Flair can't do it. But again, the story is, can Flair go? So it works for me. They get a bit fucked up by it, though, and it kind of leads to a bit of clunkiness. Uh, but they don't do anything stupid like repeating the spot. They just move on. Flair gets the advantage, whips Sean into the corner, who does, like, the smoothest flip over ever. Chop block. Michaels is into the figure four again. And I think this is great planning because when he goes into the figure four the second time, um, I'm thinking, well, okay, maybe he won't get out again. Flair with some great body movement. So, like, in the figure four, he's dragging Michaels further from the ropes. They roll through the move, and then eventually Sean gets to the ropes. Crowd is, once again, pissed. Stomping away, gets pulled away by Charles Robinson. And then Ric Flair struts and walks right into a super kick. Incredible spot. The crowd is shocked and worried. But Flair's, Flair's down, but Michael's had a hard time, so it takes him a long time to get over. Starts to pin him, and Flair kicks out as close to three as humanly possible. But Flair's now still down. Sean is up and waiting in the corner, tuning up the band. Wants Flair to get up. Flair takes forever to get up. Pulls up Flair from behind. Like, he goes to help Flair up to kind of, like, kick him in the face. But Flair raises the leg for the low blow. (laughs) And Jim Ross goes, the referee couldn't have seen it. But I'm sure, Jim, that the referee can surely see Shawn Michaels writhing on the ground, holding his nuts, and put two and two together. Michaels then gets some sort of weird inverted figure four. While he's in that flare, like, rips the turnbuckle pad off. And when Charles Robinson goes to replace it, Flair pokes Sean in the eyes to escape. Then Flair almost gets Sean with a schoolboy. I'm sure he had a handful of tights, but the camera didn't show it. Uh, (laughs) It was great. Both guys on their knees chopping each other. And they get up, and out of nowhere, another super kick. And that spot of the chops until he got kicked 
felt like Flair's last stand. That was the last fight he had in him. Sean doesn't tune up the band. He looks down. He knows what's up. Flair gets to his feet. He's asking for it. He has tears in his eyes. He knows he's done. I'm sorry. I love you. Super kick. And Flair's career is over. It's hard not to get a bit emotional watching it because what's awesome is like as soon as that count hits three, Sean like kind of jumps up and immediately cradles his head, hugs him tightly and kisses his forehead. And like Flair is bawling. And you say what you want about Sean, like in terms of a character, but Flair demanded his best. And the story was if Flair couldn't hang with him, he didn't want a career. And Sean gave him his best and he beat him. He did what his hero wanted. And I think the story of Flair going out on his shield was incredible. And I know, I know some people say it's melodramatic and it is, but I think it's more when that gets transposed to every other match, right? I can't help but get emotional watching it because these are two guys that love the business and that love each other. And they go out there to try and give the greatest of all time one last fantastic performance. Flair kisses his kids. The crowd gives him a standing ovation. Look, the match has flaws. There's two places where it's a bit clunky. But it almost doesn't matter. I still love it. It told the story it was supposed to tell. Flair wanted to go out fighting the best, and he couldn't hang anymore. I'm at four and a quarter stars. Number four best match from the 2005 Survivor Series versus Triple H, Last Man Standing. So as a rule... I hate last man standing matches. I think it's a stipulation. It leads to so much lying around and it becomes an excuse to do like big move, lie there for a minute. Big move, pattern. Like something like Cena Umaga from the 2007 Rumble. I think it's hurt in my eyes for being a last man standing match. I think it's still an all-timer, but it could have been even better. It sucks that he chokes him with the rope then has to get up and stand there while he's given a 10 count. Anyway, um... So, Flair and Triple H nearly killed each other uh, earlier in the month at Taboo Tuesday. So, we'll see what they have left in the tank for this one. Flair comes out. Triple H jumps him in the entranceway. Flair's getting the shit kicked out of him here. Uh, I love it that he's getting beat up with the robe on. It's a sight. Uh, it sucks that Flair has to wear that Intercontinental Championship, too. Like, that, 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 that design. Like, did that belt have photos of the McMahon family? I don't get how that piece of shit hung on for as long as it did. And don't get don't get all uppity about me shit talking a belt, okay? It's a belt. It doesn't have feelings. It's like babyface Triple H. Flair finally gets his robe off, and here comes a kendo stick from Flair. They fight all the way through the crowd to the hockey boards, and I usually hate the crowd stuff, but they aren't dragging each other around this time. Instead, like the velocity of the blows are sending each other like to and from the fro the ring. The counts too for the ten counts feel organic, which I like, right? Great suplex by Triple H on the outside, and Flair is struggling to get back to his feet. Right away, though, both guys are into it, though, right? Another nice suplex by Triple H. And I like I like that Triple H wrestles Flair as though he's Ric Flair. I don't like what he does to others, but I like this one. There's also feathers all over the ring, and I can't help but think whoever fucked that blue chicken should probably be jailed. They fight on the outside. Flair gets smashed into the ring post. Ah, oh, fuck. Here comes Triple H with the toolbox. Flair is cut from the post. And now Triple H is like jamming a screwdriver into the cut. And I don't mind this. Because I think it's still within the realm of believability. 
I can see a screwdriver to a cut being torturous, but I can still see someone fighting through it. Great emotion by Joey Styles talking about the screwdriver. Like he's screaming through his teeth into the face of Flair. Flair is bleeding everywhere. This is a rough month for him because I know he bled a ton at Tabu Tuesday as well. It's actually a good contrast to the Tabu Tuesday match though because this is less about killing and more about torturing so far. Triple H also trying to teach him a lesson. <laughs> like he's trying to like avenge the, the loss from the earlier month. Triple H hits a spine buster on the floor and then goes and gets a microphone to taunt him. And he goes, get up, you old bastard. Stay down or I'll put you down for good. Just fucking make up your mind, man. Get up, stay down. He's old. Look, the instructions have to be simple. I love that Triple H has the, um, the microphone in his hand too. Uh, when Flair grabs his nuts so we can hear him scream ah, into it. Oh, these matches have so much screaming. Uh, Flair is squeezing the testicles um, in one hand, but then Triple H hits him in the head with the mic. It always makes that great sound. I love it. Um, I, look, maybe I, I like that it's a last man standing for this one because it's the end of a crazy feud. Like It feels organic. Again, I keep going back to that word. Like They're just trying to pummel the other so they don't get up anymore. And I love, too, that they're slightly adapting spots from the match in the cage. These two guys now have beaten each other so badly that, like, one punch is flooring them. Triple H grabs the chair, the same chair uh, that Flair used to beat him at Taboo Tuesday. He raises it above his head, but then decides just to punch the shit out of him instead. Flair defiantly gets up and starts punching, but, like, he can't hold off Triple H, who places him in a position for a pedigree on the chair. But Flair low blows. Triple H is down. Flair grabs the chair and just lights Triple H up with it. Then Flair gets up. He bites him in the head. Uh, amazing spot where Flair gets him into the corner. He's like doing that thing where he's punching him in the face and the body. But then he just drops to his knee and punches him right in the penis. Then Coach is like, it's part of Flair's game plan to go after the uh, lower body. Flair then puts Triple H's nuts into post like four or five times. Flair then chop blocks. Bites the hamstring. I've never seen anyone bite a hamstring before. It probably tickled as fuck as well. Triple H out of nowhere too has seemingly sprouted a blue feather on his chest. And I was not ready for this. And I just, I wish, I wish, I wish it was like his dirty secret that he had to be plucked every day by Stephanie. Flair doing a great job destroying the knee of Triple H. He gets him in the figure four, uses the ropes. Ref can't do shit though, right? Triple H taps, but it doesn't count. Shows how strong the hold is. Um, it's really strong. Like it's a, it's a strong use of the hold. Flair just holds on. He like he should just hold on until the leg snaps. There's no reason to let go of the hold. Stairs in the ring now from Triple H. He runs them right into Flair's face. Then they do the drop toe hold spot, which I don't like. Uh, where like the guy holding the stairs falls face first in. Um, but whatever. It is what it is. Flair puts his head down and eats a pedigree which I believe is the first time in the two November 2005 matches these guys have that Triple H hits the moves. Flair, Flair barely gets up at nine. Another pedigree. Flair fights to his feet while flipping off Triple H. I love the defiance. Triple H punches the shit out of him, then drags him into the corner of the ring and hits a third pedigree. Flair starts to stir, and the crowd is like coming unglued. But now Triple H goes for the sledgehammer. Obviously, I'm getting angry. But... It's a two-handed shot to the back and not to head. And it's very clear that the wood hits him. And it kills Flair dead, down for the 10 count. Triple H wins. So I don't mind that. Great, great stuff. The whole match is great. 
So I usually load the sledgehammer, but it, because it wasn't to the head, right? Like it was in the back with the wood. But he also did it as a consequence of three pedigrees not working. So in the context of the match, I like the design. Just, But this is just a great hate-filled brawl from these two. Go out of your way to watch it. We forget it. It exists. Four and a half stars for me. Easy. Third best match from Taboo Tuesday 2005. Steel Cage versus Triple H. A lot of Triple H on this list. Um, I had completely forgotten, too, this was an Intercontinental Championship match. And I just remember, one thing that stood out to me in the build is I remember Flair begging to be put in a cage with Triple H. But what other, what horrible other options? One fall to a finish or submission? Look, if you're voting one fall to a finish, stop watching wrestling. It's done. This feud needed a cage. It screamed blood feud. 83% voted cage. That being said, they had the cage music like queued up like right away. Boom, 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 boom. So when I watched this for the year that was, I had it at four stars and was disappointed. And I'm kind of hoping I was tired or something and it gets a bump. Because for me, it's still, this is still one of the most memorable matches. This is before I watched this time. It's still one of the most memorable matches of the 2000s for me. Puffy H comes out with the motorhead mustache. Man, the poor dude, poor Triple H must have been so confused. He can't stand where he normally stands for the water spit. So he climbs the cage, but he misses his cue. And, you know, I got to imagine that he flagellated himself backstage for the better part of a week for that. How am I going to convince Dakota Kai to hold her hands like that if I can't spit on cue? Lots of woos as we wait for Flair. There's a guy who has a sign that says R-I-C-K Flair. Come on, for fuck's sake. Come on! I know you drew it on the back of a dryer box, but have a little respect. Styles, uh, Joey Styles, really pushing like the idea that Triple H is an egomaniac. Okay, Flair's got the black tights with the red boots. <laughs> and then I just can't tell if he's going to win or lose now, right? Uh, great story uh, that like Triple H can't stand what Ric Flair's become and wants to finish him off. Great confidence from Flair before they lock up too. Great chop, like they lock up and like uh, Flair chops Triple H and goes, wake up, brother. I fucking love it. Awesome sequence where they just go toe-to-toe. The shots are stiff. It goes until Triple H hits a jumping knee. And Flair's chops are insane in this one. Like, I get why they would stop you in their tracks. And the story so far is that Flair can fight, uh, but it, like he can fight well. But if Triple H hits that one big move, Flair can't keep up. Flair goes into the cage. He's screaming and bleeding everywhere. And this, this is what I remember from this one, right? Flair screaming bloody murder. Flair starts to measure him. Oh, God, yells Flair. Great face rake on the cage. Flair starts screaming, ah, shit, shit. The crowd is like getting uncomfortable, but in a, in like a best possible way. And Triple H is fucking excellent working the cut. Short, quick punches. It spreads that shit all over Flair and all over the mat. Triple H with a great Ric Flair knee drop that nearly kills Flair dead. Huge, huge let's go Flair chant. And this thing so far is a joy to watch. And fuck, I hate Triple H. If he could only just keep his ego in check, it drives me insane. Because when he needed to be, he could be incredible. It's like he just can't get out of his own way. Uh, great chop versus headbutt standoff with both guys fighting on top of the cage. But then they both uh, fall penis first into the top rope. Triple H keeps trying to escape the cage. Uh, but then, like, as he's climbing out, 
He kind of pulls off a link of chain uh, by accident. I love that it's an accident. Uh, and and then they play it off as an accident. Like, where'd he get that? He then decides he's going to make Flair pay with the chain. He jumps for a fist drop. But Flair gets the leg straight up to the face. One time. One time I want to see someone land on that leg and the leg just break. <laughs> I just want to see it break. Um, then Triple H hits another fist drop with the chain. Flair goes, God, Jesus Christ. The Flair takes the chain away. And Jerry Lawler's like, oh, finally. Is this a cage match or not? There's no rules. Stiff slaps to the face by Triple H. Incredible sequence where Triple H strikes with the left hand, uh, left and right to Flair's face. Like, he's got him in the corner, and it's just one punch after the other to the face. Uh, Flair actually has to push him to do the Flair flop. And it, see, Triple H does a Flair impression, but it's not forced. It doesn't look like he's trying too hard. Figure four on Flair, and Flair is screaming. <laughs> he's screaming, fuck you, I'm going to kill you. Fuck you, I'm going to kill you. I can't tell you how much I love a Ric Flair in his expressions in this match. Like, I don't get how you can watch this match and then say that his return as of 2001 was a failure. Flair's in the figure four. He's punching at Triple H's legs. He's screaming and fighting. He's screaming. He's calling him a son of a bitch. Triple H still in the figure four. Asks if Flair's done. Flair fucking spits in his face. He spits in his face, gives him the middle finger. He's like, right here, right here. And through that rage, Flair reverses. He's dead, but he reverses. And these little character touches are like heightening everything both guys are doing. Triple H grabs the leg, does the Flair figure four dance before putting it on. But then Flair kicks him and Triple H flies into the cage. He flips his hair up. He's bleeding too. And it's like, so there's already been so much crazy action, right? But now Triple H is bleeding. Flair sees the blood. And like leaps, like he, he's got that other gear. He leaps teeth first into the cut. He's biting the shit out of him. Like it's like it just went up a notch. Flair's face is completely red. Now he's working Triple H's cut masterfully. Uh, now he's like, and so they start doing all the same spots. So Rick rakes his face. Then he fucking fish hooks him from behind. It's a war. Awesome delayed suplex from Flair. Crowd is cheering. Flair's like, yeah, yeah. Flair returning back to the knee strikes to the cut. They're doing the same spots to each other. But because the, there's all this great character interaction, it doesn't feel lazy. It feels like you did this to me, now I'm going to do it to you, you sick fuck. Flair starts working the left knee. Styles does a great job of selling. Like, I love this touch because, like, Flair's working the leg and Joey Styles is like, that's the quad Triple H tore in 2001. Flair stomps the shit out of him, screaming, now, now, puts Ric Flair in the figure four. Both guys have done a tremendous job of selling the pain of that figure four. They don't lie in it. They sell it and like it's like their leg's going to be broken. Triple H almost gets to the ropes. Ric Flair, middle finger in the face, pulls him closer to the center. I love, I love the face-to-face -face nature of this hold in this context. Because they're looking at each other with pure hatred. Flair then starts punching Triple H's knee while applying the hold. Triple H has no chance but to toss Mickey Henson onto Flair to break the hold. Flair climbs to the top rope. Triple H goes to throw him off, but Flair fights and delivers a flying forearm for a close two. Flair then says, fuck it, and just scoops Triple H and drops to his knees and low blows him. Crowd's losing it. Forearm to the balls, declares Styles. Flair crawls to the door, but Triple H dives and grabs a leg. Flair manages, though, to grab a chair in the ring. And now Flair holding the chair. Like, Flair's got the chair in his hands. And... <laughs> 
And Triple H stomps the chair into the mat. Ah, goddamn my hand! Yells Flair. Now Triple H has the chair. He goes to smash Flair. But Flair just grabs a handful of nuts and starts, like, wrenching the shit out of him. One hand is squeezing the nuts. The other hand is chopping and punching. Triple H gets backdrop onto the chair. Then Flair picks up the chair and just destroys him with a chair shot to the head. He keeps doing it. Triple H on his knee. Flair levels him again. And then Flair just walks out. He's beaten him enough. Walks out of the ring. Wins the match. Incredible. This is everything I love about wrestling. I, five stars. And I'm struggling to think of what they could have done differently. It was so full of hate. The character stuff was so good. It had a satisfying finish. What was I thinking? Four stars. Jesus Christ, that was amazing. Second best match. From WrestleMania 8. Against the Macho Man Randy Savage. And now we come to what is... I would say this is probably my favorite wrestling match of all time. Uh, I don't think it's the best of all time. It's my favorite. We thought we're going to get Hogan and Ric Flair at WrestleMania 8. Instead, we're given this gem. And in just a few months, Flair and Savage were able to build this crazy blood feud that would last for the better part of a year. Flair fucked with the wrong guy. His entrance is one of my favorites. If you want to be fair to Flair, you got to be fair and say that's a heck of a robe. Only a man as fair as Flair. Savage comes out with murder in his eyes. Flair's in red. Big shock. Savage kills him in the aisle. And Perfect is already involved. Grabbing Savage by the hair. Dragging him back to the ringside area. Savage is like bludgeoning him in the ring. And like Bobby's horse on commentary. And Gorilla remarks that Bobby and company may have made a mistake. Uh, fucking with this dude's wife. Savage then sprints at Flair in a rage. And Flair backdrops him all the way to the floor. And the momentum turns. Flair beats him up for the next few minutes. Flair gets a close two count after a delayed suplex. And Bobby declares an 80-year-old woman could have counted faster. Flair's arrogance, too, as he walks over the injured Savage is so great. Flair continues to beat down. And Bobby asks, the, Bobby's like, Gorilla, spit, the, spit that banana out of your mouth and give him a woo. Flair with more suplexes. And Gorilla warns that Flair shouldn't be playing with a guy like Savage. Again, great warning. Savage's selling is fantastic. Just getting the shit kicked out of him ever since that big backdrop, which turned the whole match around. It's like the anger got the better of him, and now he made a mistake, so he's paying. I love the spot where, like, Flair's got Savage in the corner. He's chopping him. But Savage starts throwing some punches, so Flair heaves his whole body at him like a boxer would to trap his arms and slow him down. Uh, more fighting. Uh, Flair stupidly goes to the top. Now, not... Not only does Savage grab him to slam him off, I'd never noticed this before, but Randy Savage kind of like climbs up the first turnbuckle also to get Flair higher in the air. It looks ridiculous, but it kills Flair dead because it's so high. Like, like Savage is like propelled off the rope, so one of Flair's legs goes weird in the air and smashes down. Uh, I love it. Uh, <laughs> Flair getting rocked now. Great shot with Flair on his knees begging. Savage spits in his face. Irish whip to the corner. Flair flips over, sprints the other turnbuckle, climbs up, and jumps at Savage, who counters with just an uppercut to the face. Super close two count. So close that the crowd is booing, like the ref made a mistake. Perfect is exasperated. Savage ducks a clothesline and sends Flair flipping over to the top rope with a clothesline of his own. Flair gets double axe handled into the railing. Now he's bleeding, much to the chagrin of Vince McMahon. Uh, Bobby's like, please stop the match. <laughs> And I love Flair too now is fantastic whenever he gets knocked down now because he's sprawled out and looking completely dead. 
Savage hits the big elbow, has Flair beat, but Perfect slides in and pulls Savage off the pin. Savage chases Perfect around him. When he gets him in the corner, Perfect slips the knuckles to Flair. Savage eats those knuckles and is out cold. But then barely on the, on the count, one, two, just shifts his body. Oh, it's such a good kick out. Flair's all business now, though. The urgency is here. He's pummeling Savage. He's trying to bust him open. Flair distracts the ref while Perfect smashes a knee, uh, Savage's knee with a chair on the outside. It's just chaos. Here's Elizabeth. So much more chaos. Flair's going to town on the leg. Crowd in a frenzy. Figure four on Savage. Randy's fighting, though. Savage reverses and fights out, but he can't put any more pressure on the leg. I've never seen anybody sell a leg injury better than Randy Savage, and it's not just here. Savage also gets the win, almost gets the win with a small package. Then Flair puts Savage in the corner with Elizabeth and woos at her. It's for you, baby. Flair grabs Savage's leg and goes to punch him, but Savage blocks. Punches him once, spins him around, schoolboys him, handful of tights, wins the title. One, two, three. Post-match is all incredible. The hatred continues. Look, I think this match is perfect. The hate is there. It plays perfectly into their story. It's a quick sprint. Flair just fucked with the wrong guy and is paying for it. But I also think that this is the only time where we get horseman-like chaos in a WWF match. Flair loses the match but kind of wins the war as the injuries he inflicts here would eventually bring him the title back in September. He walks out of the match on his own terms. And then he cuts an all-time promo in the back. Five stars. Sorry, it is what it is. Sorry, not sorry, as the children say. Best match, you know what it is. 1992 Royal Rumble. Five stars. I don't think I need to say any more on this match that hasn't already been said. It's probably an argument you made. It's the best hour in the history of pro wrestling. Look, from Flair's varied performance throughout to the commentary of Bobby Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon, from the stakes rarely being higher in a single match to the sheer star power involved in the whole thing. It's a masterpiece. I mean, think of all the little incredible moments Flair was able to have with a bunch of different people within the confines of the match. All the great stuff with Davy Boy. He goes after Haku, despite Bobby's pleas. He fights every single guy who's ever hated him. These guys, mind you, that just keep getting bigger. Went after the Barbarian and discovered that, contrary to popular belief, he was not a hairdresser in his day off. He's left alone with the country hick, the boss man. He tried to lift David Boy Smith. He tried to lift The Undertaker. Gorilla's like off. He's like, That's not what he's doing. Nah, fuck off, Gorilla. He was prematurely called the winner after getting the shit kicked out of him, right? Uh, and he's exhausted in the ring. And here comes the happiest Rowdy Roddy Piper ever to just destroy him. He was nearly murdered by Jake the Snake, eliciting thanks from Bobby to Hot Rod. And then nearly murdered by Piper, forcing Bobby to declare that it was in fact a skirt Piper was wearing. Hulk Hogan murdered Flair. (laughs) Bobby promised to never say or do anything bad again. And then finally Flair won the whole thing. Lasting over an hour, winning everyone over in the process. It's a masterclass in wrestling. Just watch it if you haven't. But if you have, you know, right? It's insane to me though, the three of his top five matches were during his post-2001 comeback. And they weren't pity rankings. They were all legitimately great. Promos. Look, it's Ric Flair cutting promos. We know it's going to be great. And there's a ton I could have chosen from, but I found so many of them were very long, right? And how detailed do I really have to be about why Flair is a great promo? I thought about doing the Rumble victory speech. And while it's brilliant, it's a little subdued for him. 
Maybe the Thunderlips promo, but again, it's it's long, and he says big man about a dozen times in it. Hell, there's even this great promo from Raw in October 2005 where he's got like a bandage on his head and he punches it till he bleeds. Instead, I found this one. It's short and succinct, but I think it gets all the points across. It's a week or so after the title loss to Randy Savage WrestleMania 8. He's still got the bandage on his head. Uh, in many ways, it's a rehash of the promo that Flair, perfect, and he didn't cut backstage after the loss. But I love the control of this one. Let's give it a listen. Of all my time in the World Wrestling Federation, I have never seen such a ripoff. Macho Man Randy Savage. Everybody saw him. You had a handful of trunks. You're a cheater just like your old lady. This man has never taken a shortcut to anywhere. And Savage, when it comes to you, we are going to take care of business once and for all. What we have here, Macho Man is a breakdown in communication. You see, you're running around town now telling everybody that you're the real world champion. And why not? Because you think you beat Ric Flair. You're the WWF champion. And why not? Because you think you beat Ric Flair. And above all else, now you think you've defended triumphantly the honor of Liz. Well, my friend, all you've done is opened up the biggest keg of dynamite on the face of this earth. It's called Perfect and Flair, side by side. And my friend, I give a man his due. You might have pulled my tights, but the bottom line is the macho man's the champ for the moment. For the moment. And wherever we go, macho man, remember this. You did it once, now you gotta do it again. And Liz, I know you're gonna be there every night, baby. And I want you to know I'm gonna kiss you on those wet, moist lips one more time. Woo! Woo! Right off the bat, Flair is calmly agreeing with Perfect. And when he starts to speak, notice he speaks slow and cool. He's talking about a breakdown in communication. I don't love this start. I feel like he's quoting something, but it's Ric Flair, so whatever. Then, he slowly starts to build the idea that Macho Man has been running around town telling everyone he's the real world's champion. Flair's pull, so the emphasis on the word real, is awesome. He's been pulling on it for months when describing himself, but in this instance, he pulls on it just a little too hard which I think colors it with sarcasm and disdain. It wasn't sarcasm when he was saying it about himself, but now that it's Randy Savage who's calling himself the real world's champion, like, it's, it's just a great, it's a great use of tone. The undulation to the ups and downs of Flair's voice here is great. He's like, and why not? And why not? You know? Uh, back low, because you think you beat Ric Flair. Why not? Because you think you beat Ric Flair. He's taking us on a journey. Right, I'm about 15 seconds in. I'm not sure where the promo's going. And this is exactly where you want to be in a wrestling promo when you're watching it. I love, too, how it's all colored with because you think you beat Ric Flair. Now, this could mean many things. Yes, it plays off perfect assertions that Savage cheated and stuff. But I think there's something else here. I think Ric Flair keeps repeating because you think you, think you beat Ric Flair because he's stating that Macho Man didn't win, that Ric Flair lost. Flair fucked up. 
And this was his backwards way of admitting it. He messed with the Macho Man's wife, which drove Savage into a psychotic rage. Not only that, when he had the match won in Indianapolis, instead of finishing off Savage, he played to Elizabeth. Just that little bit too much. In Flair's mind, Savage can't beat Ric Flair. Only Ric Flair can beat Ric Flair. It's a backhanded insult. Not a compliment, an insult. And the reason I think this is true, besides the subtle delivery and the facial expressions, is that for the next four months, Ric Flair systematically destroys Randy Savage, in a different way, until he's champion again. It's brilliant stuff. And then he keeps going, and now you think you've defended, triumphantly, the honor of Elizabeth. Again, you think you did this. Obviously, Flair is saying, you can't defend her honor because I've already completely dishonored her. Then he slightly laughs on the word triumphantly and honor. Wow, what a great choice. It totally diminishes those qualities in both Randy Savage and Elizabeth in the simplest of ways. And then here's the crux of what he's talking about. You've opened the biggest powder keg ever. Perfect and flair. This is the only time he's really getting raised his voice. It's a threat that something bad is coming for the Macho Man. But I also think it's more evidence of my theory that he knows how to beat Savage now. And then Ric Flair won't beat himself again. But then there's a great shift where he puts over Savage and gives him his due. He knows full well that he can't, unlike Perfect, criticize for Savage pulling the tights. He goes, the bottom line is, Macho Man is the champ. Now this opens a door. He grants the cheating. But in doing so, later, he can cheat and say, fuck it. Bottom line, I'm the champion. If you can stoop to X, then I can stoop to Y. Plus, it puts over his... This is a subtle thing, too. But it puts over his opponent's accomplishment. I mean, it meant something to beat Ric Flair. Macho Man is the champion. Tone drop down. For the moment. For the moment. Awesome change there. That's a threat. The action on that one is probably too worn, right? And there's a slight slowdown in the rate of delivery for the second. For the moment. It hammers home that Savage's time on top is going to be short. Then we rev things up into Manic Flair challenging Savage to do it one more time. But then this weird kind of 180 at the end when he's like talking about kissing Liz on those wet, moist lips. One more time. He just infuses so much sex into those words. Um, I know where you're going to be there every night, baby. There's interest there. Even the way he says baby. I could probably be convinced that the character Ric Flair believes that Liz is actually infatuated with him. And then, of course, he finishes with the crazed woos, but then caps it off with a bunch of kisses. Listen, he put over his opponent. He subtly admitted that the whole ordeal was his own fault. He laid out a plan for the next few months without spelling it out. We know from this we're getting a new Ric Flair, and we do get that going forward. He's selling the importance of every interaction they're going to have going forward. All in 90 seconds. Flair is a master of tone change, the subtle coloring, keeping an audience on their toes with rate of delivery. Look, he's the man. He's an incredible talker. 10 on 10. Next up, importance. Now, like like every other category with Ric Flair, he's hard to rate in the WWF in this category. Because in, in the history of wrestling, he's obviously top five most important wrestlers. Uh, potentially... I mean, potentially number one, right? But in the WWF, though, his 1991 to 1993 run, I I think it's one of the best years in company history for my money. money. But 
would things have really changed that much without it? Was Ric Flair the transition of the new era guys, or was that Bret Hart, right? Can we even get to Bret Hart being champion without Ric Flair first coming in and showing Vince that a wrestler's wrestler rather than a superhero could be the world champion? I mean, he puts over Bret to be the next guy, right? But it's not the same. It doesn't make him in the same way that, say, Mick Foley would make Triple H later in the same decade. He's certainly important to me. Uh, my all-time favorite wrestling memory is still watching that 92 Royal Rumble with my friends. Their disappointment in his victory is still one of my proudest moments. They left my house unhappy, and our friendship was more than likely tarnished beyond repair. See, I'm going to lean a bit towards his run not really changing anything, big picture company-wise, though. 1991 to summer 1992... It, it, is especially an era where they were really trying to infuse two things into the product. Realism and psychopaths, right? Now, Ric Flair represented that realism. This was a dude who could out-wrestle you, but also play psychological games about whether he betted your wife or not. Yeah, I mean, so sure, like, a guy like Rick Rude, right, would insinuate that he might pick up your wife. Ric Flair came straight out and said, yes, I was with her, and yes, I broke her pussy. Damaged goods, pal! But sadly, Ric Flair was an anomaly. Within months of his departure, we're back to jingoism of the Americans needing to fight the foreign menace. His in-ring excellence had little to no effect on the product, besides making that year really good. But that's got to count for something, right? I think, it's funny, he might be more important to the product overall in his later years. See, I think he acted as the link between the old school and the new school in the mid-2000s. I mean, even if you weren't in, like... Even if you weren't into a guy who's coming down to the ring like, Just look at me, by Randy Newman. Well, Ric Flair was still there, right? He represented tradition. But he was also something of a trophy for the WWF to show off. A constant reminder of the war they had won. But that being said, he could always be counted on to bring gravitas to a situation. You want to heat up Carlito? Well, then trade on the credibility of Ric Flair. Umaga needs to be a world beater? Have him savage Flair's throat. Flair is also probably more responsible than any other one person in the development of Randy Orton and Batista. Now, I have no idea when Randy Orton will retire. He might wrestle till he's 100. But with each passing year, I like this dude more and more. Dave Batista was a phenomenon. I don't know if it's osmosis or outright teaching, but clearly fled, Flair bled into them and made them each bonafide superstars. It's no surprise that within a year of hanging and banging uh, with Flair, Batista was the hottest dude in the promotion. Flair, though, is still the only guy, like, and this is kind of a crazy thing. He's the only guy I can really remember coming straight into the promotion as himself and was given a main event level push immediately. Like, AJ Styles came in as himself, but it took a while to get him to main event, right? And that in itself is shocking. They debut Lex Luger about a year after and are trying to convince us he's a completely different person called Narcissus. Then they made him Jim Duggan 2.0. The less said about that, the better. But Flair was Flair from the start. And that is a tremendous victory in itself. He wasn't young when he came in. He's 42 years old in 1991. He comes in and fucking delivers every time. He creates chaos and has great match after great match. And then who would have thought that he'd wrestle for another six years after WCW closed the doors, right? 
This is massive overachieving. I mean, they could have kept Flair as a manager and it would have been fine, but no. Ric Flair goes out and delivers some of his best work, uh, at least in the WWF, WWE at that time. He becomes a tag team champion. He becomes a credible intercontinental champion. Ric Flair is a career overachiever. And he achieved overachieved until he was nearly 60. Of his 36 pay-per-view matches that I've watched, for me, my money, he has the best match on the show seven times. So a fifth of the time, he has the best match on a given show. That's nothing to say about the promos or the interferences he adds to every show he's on. Three times, he has the worst match on the show. But even then, even those matches are not bad. And I'm not... There's a couple of matches I thought about including in his worst matches, but I'm not going to take him to task um, for being part of the Triple H and Jericho team against like Nash and company. Why on earth would I blame Ric Flair for that fiasco? I'm saying nothing about when they teamed him with Eugene to face La Resistance. La Res sucked, and Eugene, well, look, Eugene, Eugene should have been killed as a character. He should have like eaten a beaten a beating from Evolution one day, and then the next week Jim Ross can come out in the Owen Hart voice and be like, "Well, um, I hate to. Sometimes things happen, and Eugene has dad. Like, you know, do the ten bell salute, whatever. We never talk about it. Maybe name the women's battle royal after him, since all the women they've tried to name it after are problematic. The Eugenius battle royal, anyway." Those are his two worst matches. I'm not going to give him, uh, I'm not going to knock him for that. And another is a two and a half star fair. So Flair's not hurting any show he's on. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's a boon to have Ric Flair on your show. No matter the time and place, he's going to do something to make it better. Even if it's just screaming and removing his pants. Because Ric Flair's always good for business. That's why they continue to trot him out, right? <laughs> Whenever they can. That's why he's the first guy to go into the Hall of Fame two times. He could always be counted on to bring it. To bring others up to his level, but also to heat someone up and take them to the next level. So like I mentioned, it is a bit hard to gauge his importance, but I don't want to overrate him because I like his work. So I'm going to go 6 on 10 in terms of importance to the WWE. Presentation. I mean, I mean, they built the whole company around him the moment he came in. Not only that, but they allowed him to bring a level of chaos to the promotion that we hadn't seen before. He was everywhere. He was interfering in matches, interrupting funerals, starting brawls with the announcers. And then when he showed up next time, he's brought in as Vince McMahon's equal in terms of ownership. So you can kind of tell they always respected the hell out of Ric Flair, even if at times they used him as a mascot. I think if there's any dip, it's when he's relegated to just being a lackey for Triple H. But he's so good in the role, you almost don't notice. He got put over the best of the best, too, in terms of presentation. He beats Hogan and Sid at the Rumble. He beats Piper. He eventually beats Savage. But even in his return, in his hottest feud, he's put over Triple H as strong as anyone can be. He got to hit the man with the chair and walk away and win the match. Who else got to do that besides Mark Undertaker? So let's get ready for some sacrilege. Hit it.
I prefer his original WF music to the theme from 2001 A Space Odyssey. I know. It just felt like the most important man on earth was coming down the aisle. It starts with a goddamn drum roll. Then like a burst of triumph. Flair knew exactly too how to walk in rhythm to it as well. His body movement was timed perfectly to the climaxes of the song, suggesting that he's probably had sex to it multiple times. And much like Flair's climaxes, the peaks of this song, I mean, just bring joy to everyone all around. You were witnessing the greatest of all time, and Jim Johnston gave us the perfect soundtrack for it. Or did he? Woo! Obviously, the 2001 theme is iconic, and I begrudge no one for saying that I'm insane for preferring his original tune. Woo! Off the top, told us it's time for the Nature Boy. And before you say anything, yes, I know the Jim Johnston version was clearly a ripoff of 2001 Space Odyssey, alright? But now, right after thinking about the Johnston version for 10 minutes, I'm struggling to sing the 2001 version in my own head, like they're that similar. In fact, when I just listened, I saw, I, I, after I thought about this, I know it's playing now, but obviously I thought about this before. I may have been swayed back to the Kubrick soundtrack. I love the, the triumphant timpani beats between the, the rises. So it's like, ba, 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 boom, 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 boom. It's those boom, 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 boom. Man, what a way to sell the importance of a moment. The climax is also incredible. I mean, fuck it. Ric Flair just had kick-ass music no matter which song it was. It just worked for him. Now, I think... I'm not sure there's really any other times, too, Ric Flair could have been a champion that wasn't. The sentimental me would have liked to see him get a quick reign in 2002, you know, beating Triple H for the big gold belt. But I don't know how much sense that would have made based on the stories they were telling. I definitely would have loved a last main event program for Flair, say in 2006 or seven where he was like gunning for one of the big champions for one last run. Like imagine a feud with him and Cena, or him and Batista. No, no, it had to be Cena. We saw what happened in him at the 2005 Rumble when he tried to get go at Batista. Let's rank his attire. Uh, worst, red. I mean, he's losing, right? Next, green robe from the funeral parlor. And we only got to see it once at that funeral parlor when he confronted Hogan. Uh, but I love... <laughs> I just love that that's what he wore to confront Hogan. It's like he asked Paul Bearer. It's like he cornered Paul Bearer and like, dude, what color is the dry ice going to be? And then dressed accordingly. Next, red-black variant. Uh, Super weird during the Triple H feud and I guess the other matches too. Once it was black boots with red tights, then the opposite. I kind of get the impression that someone was fucking with him and kept moving his shit around backstage. I mean, I find it hard to find stuff at 42 in my own house. I can imagine a dude at 56 years old wandering around the bowels of an arena trying to find his shit. WrestleMania 24 Blue is next. I don't remember him wearing this particular shade of blue at any other point in his tenure. I don't like that the robe had a zipper. I mean, what if you you zip your penis? 
But I can't argue it's an exceptional color. Uh, purple, next. Royal Ric Flair looks so fucking good next to Purple Razor Ramon at the Tie Night 2 Survivor Series. And uh, I think my favorite, though, is the black look. I mean, it's such a classic look. I love the black robe with the white feathers. It's probably my all-time favorite look of his. I like that he wore the robe to everywhere. Like, even when he's not fighting at this Tuesday in Texas, he's still walking around in the robe backstage. I guess it's much easier to flash the Laker girls when you're not wearing pants, and the robe can help you. For whatever reason, though, probably racism, they never made much merchandise for this dude. I scoured uh, the 1991 to 1993 WWF magazine catalogs, and I found one poster of him in a pink robe and a shitty t-shirt. It was black and said flare across the front, and his face was kind of black and white, plastered sideways across. I mean, what, what are we doing? This dude is the centerpiece for your whole promotion. Why aren't we selling robes or, or video distorted belts? Imagine fucking with everyone's eyes carrying that thing around. Hey, is that an optical illusion? No, sir. That's that bastard Jack Tunney video distorting my belt. Where are the Ric Flair condoms or, or, or the boilerplate forms for divorce proceedings? The, the applications of this man's life are limitless. I also searched as much as possible in the mid-2000s catalogs. There is nothing. I'm sure he had a shirt, but I just can't find it. Um... At the very least, like, you know, they were just focusing on Cena, Orton, Batista, Rey Mysterio. But why aren't we selling Ric Flair pomade? Flair was given a Hasbro figure when they came out, and they wrenched his arms to look like a, like a headlock position, because that's what, you know, Ric Flair is known for, his devastating headlocks. Also, he was in red, so ready to be beaten by everyone on your roster. Another tiny gripe with the figure? I know Flair has different color eyebrows than his hair, we all know it, the figure makes his eyebrows like as black as goddamn coal and his hair as white as Kamala's star tits, right? Do we need that much contrast? It's monstrous. Also, his mouth is 10,000 teeth. The teeth are the same color as the hair. It's a mess. Jax released their classic superstar line. He's part of the very first wave in some sweet light blue trunks. After that, there's like dozens of them in that, in that line. And he was even given the rare Jax LJN treatment. Spiffy blue trunks, his fingers positioned to strut. Flair's been represented really well in the Mattel line. His first figure was the Defining Moments line with the black robe. Uh, if someone wants to send me that figure in the mail, hey, I'm not going to say no. Red robe variant, uh, which fits nicely across from my golden Randy Savage on my shelf. La Creme de la Creme, though, is the recently released Ultimate Edition. Fantastic pink robe, purple trunks, great face sculpt. He's in mid-woo. I love that figure. What they lacked in t-shirts and Flair Ben Gay, they made up with figures. All in our, he's presented super well. Uh, it's Ric Flair, 8 out of 10. Feuds. We all know where I'm going with this. If you're looking for blood feuds, Ric Flair had an amazing way of making everything personal. He fucking destroyed Hot Rod with that wooden chair on Superstars. And this led to both guys killing each other. From there, he could have just fought Randy Savage, but no, 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 no. He had to make it about staple marks and towels that said Rick and Liz. These men would try to murder each other for the better part of the next year. Then he gets real personal with Mr. Perfect. It's personal with Vince. Vin Undertaker pisses on his friend. Every guy he gets entangled with ends with pure hatred. And we've talked about it at length, but the, the feud between Triple H and Flair might be the best blood feud of 2005. Maybe the last blood feud the company's ever done. So look, you know where I'm at with blood feuds if you listen to this. Eight on ten. I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, moments. Oh, there's so many classic moments in Flair's career. Bobby showing up with the belt. The primetime debut. 
the chaos with Roddy and Vince at Superstars. Beating the shit out of Hogan at a funeral parlor after calling him big man a hundred times. Man, I've called my, my rivals big man for years after. I still do. The post-match beatdown of Savage at WrestleMania 8 with the Liz stuff. The world title victories. Hell, even being bounced from the promotion by Perfect. These are huge moments by any standard. But then, you get the return the night after Survivor Series 2001 in Charlotte. The music plays and the place goes crazy. Like, And it's such a great heroic welcome for the dude. He comes out looking like a million bucks because he bet on a winner last night. Vince McMahon is so upset at this moment, he nearly rips his own ear off his head. And this was a really big transitional episode of Raw, and this was such a great way to finish it. Uh, Flair, later, this is a small moment, but Flair begging Vince not to kill the company and introducing the Lonely Road of Faith music video by Kid Rock. Amazing. Forming Evolution, teaming with his buddies to fight The Rock. Then there's the small ones, like... In the 2005 Rumble, he's teaming with Batista, he's getting into it, and then as soon as Batista turns his back, he tries to throw him off, and he fl- it, Flair falls off. He's caught like a child. No one's also ever gotten more into a game of musical chairs than Ric Flair, the night that Eugene was the general manager and not dead. And Flair struts around to the chairs, to the music. He shoves Stacy to cheat, uh, which I love. And then when he, he fucking loses his shit when he gets eliminated. Like, he was committed. Hell, Even telling Triple H he hated him in the figure four. Like, I hate you. Fuck you, I hate you. Like, it's... This was a living, breathing character who had great moments. And I could list more, but we're going long, right? So let's just give him nine out of ten, call it a night. I really struggle to find a worst moment for him. Um, I keep coming back to the match with the big show against Steve Austin, but even then, it's not that bad. And obviously, a single best moment is winning the Royal Rumble. That's a big score for moments to, cl- to close off the category. So where are we at? Well, here's where we're at. The list so far, Mr. Perfect in last place with 53.25 points. The Honky Tonk Man slightly above, 56.648. Trish, 59. Diesel, 61.63. Razor, 62.016. Batista, 63.208. And Jake Roberts, commanding lead, with 76.356. And I'll tell you what, my friends, Ric Flair is the new champion of this project so far with a score of 78.32 points. He slips ahead of Jake by two points. So where does he win, right? Well, his star ratings, when doubled, amount to one point, a whole point over Jake. Jake is at 5.35, Flair is at 6.32. So in the first episode, I remember mentioning that Jake having poor outings in pay-per-views might hurt him going forward. And here it is. Like, this is exactly what it is. In my last episode, too, I talked about how five of the categories are about the wrestler. So, uh, is he a good face, a good heel? What's his promo like, his work, and his matches? And on the other side is is how the company books them and perceives them. So, in terms of the personal scores, like heel work, face work, promo work, and matches, right? It's 40.356 for Jake, right? Uh, And, excuse me, 40.356... Uh, for Jake, and Flair has 40.32. So, you know, we're into decimals, so it's a dead heat, right? The difference is in all is in importance and moments. The WWF just gave more to Ric Flair, and maybe they were right to. Then again, maybe not. If they're so balanced when it comes to the personal attributes, maybe it was unfair. 
And this is forever going to be a point of discussion in, in this project, but any list-based thing. If you're doing a GWW list, it's the same thing, right? How do you balance someone who had all the opportunity in the world versus someone who did not? And the problem I keep coming to is I can't rate on potential, right? When Ric Flair was given the ball, though, he nailed it. He scored every time. So their confidence was well-placed. It'll be interesting to see going forward who is pushed ahead more by the company and more on merit. But should we really be surprised that Ric Flair is our top scorer so far? He's Ric fucking Flair. I think one of the knocks against the guy is that he's always... (sighs) Is that he's in, people say he's only been in the promotion for a year and a half, then he comes back when he's older. Then they shit on that run. And while I can freely admit that we didn't get prime Ric Flair from 2002 to 2008, we still got a damn good performer. And I think it's easy to be disappointed by what we didn't get, as opposed to accepting that Ric Flair did some real quality work in his old age. I had to search for bad matches for the dude. I found middling matches. That's what populated his bottom five. What I did find when I looked deeper was a really solid second act of his career. He brought all the gravitas and experience, but gave it to us in a different package. The Rumble win in 92 is always an impressive feat. But is it really that much more impressive than going out and having a bloody emotional cage match at the age of 56? Is it more impressive than going out and wrestling a credible main event level match with Shawn Michaels at 58? I think it's kind of lame to diminish the accomplishments of a guy just because he used to be better. The degree of difficulty is there, and it should be ranked on degree of difficulty. It's probably easier to have a Rumble match at 42 than it is a cage match at 56. I don't know. What I do know is Ric Flair is pro wrestling. He styles, he profiles, he's probably the greatest to ever lace up the boots in many aspects. And I think it's cool that he's atop the list for now. I'll make no bones, all right? He's going to get knocked off. It's going to happen probably sooner than later, right? But for the time being, let's enjoy that ride to Space Mountain. Let's marvel at the balls of parading around with that championship in 1991. Let's imagine the respect he was held in to be able to kiss Elizabeth. Let's applaud his ability to give back whenever the business needed. And finally, let's give someone credit for facing their insecurities And accepting that while you may not be as good as you once were, you're still capable of greatness. All in all, can we please, please just be fair to Flair? Next time on The Wrestler That Was, a guy who I thought was lining up to be one of the worst of all time until a late career run changed everybody's mind and changed the consensus. See you then. 